Avarim Prisima. Last week, we considered what we've been told about the moral condition of the world before the second coming. Today, we'll pick up uh, where we left off last week. And although we've spoken about much of what we'll cover today, it bears repeating since so many are sucked in by these deceptions. As usual, uh, the quotes will be cut, pasted, and edited, and uh, it's not an academic exercise, so I'm not going to cite every source. Before we get going, there is one resource I'd like to recommend. Steve Wood has put together a series of free, prod, free podcasts on biblical prophecy and the end times from a Catholic perspective. He's got about 50 of them up so far. They're each about 14 minutes long. You can find them at Luke 21 Radio. It's at um, podbean.com. Again, those are free podcasts looking at biblical prophecy and then times from a Catholic perspective. They're put out by uh, Steve Wood, and you can find them at Luke 21 Radio. So you also, when you see these things come to pass, know that the kingdom of God is at hand. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Last week we saw that the Catechism of the Catholic Church states that the church must pass the final trial in the form of a religious deception offering men an apparent solution to their problems at the price of apostasy from the truth. We saw that in those days, in spite of the fact that they will love pleasure more than God and be more, both very wicked in their works and perverse in their ideas, men will still profess to be Christians. We saw there'll be an absolutely terrible, unprecedented outbreak of evil, during which time society will be racked and torn into pieces by apostasy, heresy, schism, sedition, revolution, and war. We saw that in the midst of all that chaos, the Antichrist will appear. We saw his marvels and seductions will not deceive a small remnant, those are the people that love and believe in the truth. We saw that the men who have been resistant to the truth, they don't want to hear the truth because it hurts, because it means they have to change their sinful and disordered ways of life and thinking. Men who want to live the way they want to live, those men, the vast majority of men, will receive a just punishment for the rejection of the known truth, which, as we saw, is one of the sins against the Holy Ghost. So as a just punishment for the rejection of the known truth, the vast majority of men will fall under the operation of error, and so God will permit them to have what they do want and what they do love, which is the lie. And so they'll be deceived by the Antichrist, and they'll follow him. So if we're going to sum up what we've seen, we've seen that how we respond to truth is the key to our salvation. If we embrace the truth, if we submit ourselves, our intellects, and our desires in service to the truth, ultimately, we'll be saved. It's that basic. But if we resist or reject the truth, if we live according to our desires, not according to the truth, and if we die in that condition, then we'll be damned. It's also that basic. So obviously, each one of us needs to have a single heart in pursuit of the truth, wherever it leads, and however painful it might be. The truth himself told us that the truth would set us free. And he knows what he's talking about. So that's the big picture in terms of the moral climate 
of society in the end times. At the time of the great apostasy, this great rebellion, there'll be a terrible, unprecedented outbreak of evil, and society will be racked by apostasy, heresy, schism, sedition, revolution, war, and societal breakdown. Okay, so much for the review. Now let's apply this to certain uh, aspects of our current situation. Obviously, we're only going to have time to touch on a few of the more serious issues. In terms of societal breakdown, we'll start by speaking briefly about human sacrifice, which in our times has become a global phenomenon. There are only six countries in the world that outlaw abortion under any circumstances. That's Chile, the Dominican Republic, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Malta, and the Vatican. St. John Paul II made some very appropriate observations in this regard as encyclical Evangelium Vitae, and I quote, the acceptance of abortion in the popular mind, in behavior, and even in law itself, is a telling sign of an extremely dangerous crisis of the moral sense, which is becoming more and more incapable of distinguishing between good and evil, even when the fundamental right to life is at stake. Given such a grave situation, we need now more than ever to have the courage to look the truth in the eye and to call things by their proper name without yielding to convenient compromises or to the temptation of self-deception. In this regard, the reproach of the prophet Isaiah is extremely straightforward. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and lightness for darkness. Close quote, the Vicar of Christ. We need now more than ever to have the courage to look the truth in the eye and call things by their proper name without yielding to convenient compromises or temptation of self-deception. Many people's consciences have become progressively obscured. The acceptance of abortion in the popular mind, in behavior, and even in law itself is a telling sign of an extremely dangerous crisis of the moral sense, which is becoming more and more incapable of distinguishing between good and evil. There are so many signs of an almost complete societal breakdown that we couldn't possibly cover them. Just to point to a few of the, form of the more obvious, the fundamental unit of society is the family. But we're reaching the point, in our society at least, which vast numbers of men and women seem almost incapable of getting married and then staying married. We've reached the point where priests, bishops, cardinals, and even the Pope himself seem in, unable to teach or defend the truths revealed to us by Christ himself in regards to marriage. We've reached the point where vast numbers of married couples are deliberately refusing to bring forth any children, or at best, very few children. We've reached the point where vast numbers of children are not growing up with two parents in the home where vast numbers of parents seem incapable of properly disciplining the children that they do have. And in that regard, I suspect that a lot of this lack of discipline springs from the fact that many of these indulgent parents are actually trying to appease their own guilt. And so they spoil the survivors. They spoil the ones who live through to see daylight. They spoil the ch children 
that survived that lottery, the ones who weren't sacrificed on those federally protected altars of Satan, the ones who weren't aborted. And the survivors of this Holocaust then, for the most part, have been forced by their very own parents to actually spiritually participate in abortions, to spiritually participate in human sacrifice, to actually be in communion with human sacrifice, to actually receive unholy communions by being inoculated with vaccines prepared using human fetal tissue. Vaccines prepared using living tissue which was deliberately harvested. And isn't that a beautiful word? Living tissue sliced out of a little human sacrifice and then used to prepare these potions which were then injected into the fences little bodies of other babies. And every time they receive a vaccination prepared with fetal tissue, it's a medical and spiritual reality that they are, by that very act, receiving another unholy communion. It's a medical and spiritual reality. They're actually entering into communion with a human sacrifice. It's a medical and spiritual reality. They're actually coming into communion with satanic sacrifice of that little unbaptized baby who's cut apart to get that fetal tissue. It's a diabolical conversion of the way a little Byzantine baby enters into communion with our Lord's sacrifice on the cross when he receives Holy Communion. Every time that little Byzantine baby receives Holy Communion, he comes into union with the crucified and resurrected Savior and he receives the graces and the gifts of that union, the spiritual fruits of our Lord's death upon the cross, peace and life, virtues and strength, every time he receives Holy Communion. And every time a little baby receives a vaccination prepared with fetal tissue, he comes into union with the violent and horrific death of another baby, who at the request of at least one of his parents was sliced to bits, was suffering excruciating pain. And by receiving that injection, he also receives the spiritual fruits of that satanic sacrifice, inchoate rage, pain, and death. And that's repeated each time he receives a vaccination prepared with fetal tissue. Every time. Every time. And so we're raising a confused, unruly generation who, in large part, don't know what discipline and love are. They have no direction, no meaningful purpose in life. Her missing brothers and sisters because their parents didn't want anymore. Or carrying the spiritual burden of any number of human sacrifices, and are well aware, at least in their spirit, in a vast number of cases that their own, very own parents have sacrificed their siblings. What does a generation like that care about us? Just watch what happens to elderly as euthanasia ramps up. Just watch. And if you all think the chaos over TVs and toys on Black Friday was alarming, 
Just wait till we have some food storages or food shortages. You ain't seen nothing yet. So societal breakdown, sedition, revolution, war, we're there, we're there. All it's gonna take is a spark. We're there. We need now more than ever to have the courage to look the truth in the eye and to call things by their proper name without yielding to convenient compromises or the temptation of self-deception. Many people's consciences have become progressively obscured. The acceptance of contraception, sterilization, divorce, unruly children, euthanasia, and fetal tissue vaccines in the popular mind and behavior and even in law itself is a telling sign of an extremely dangerous crisis of the moral sense, which is becoming more and more incapable of distinguishing between good and evil. Let's turn to apostasy and heresy. The last times will be characterized by apostasy and heresy. They're certainly some of the most powerful forces uh, in producing this whole wretched society, filled as it is with people that are living with darkened minds and depraved morals, who are deliberately and obstinately resistant to the truth. These problems are so obvious at every level in the church that it doesn't bear much comment. All we have to do is simply point towards it. For example, the whole unreal situation concerning the application of Morris Letizia, which many prelates are now claiming that is somehow consistent with the Catholic faith to pretend that people who are living in sin are actually married, and to compound that sacrilegious or scandalous recognition, rather, to compound that scandalous recognition by extending to those poor sinners an official invitation to make sacrilegious communions. And that's a situation which prevails even in the Diocese of Rome. We need now more than ever to have the courage to look truth in the eye and to call things by their proper name without yielding to convenient compromises or the temptation of self-deception. Many people's consciences have become progressively obscured. The acceptance of apostasy and heresy in the popular mind and behavior and even at the very heights of the church itself, are just a telling sign of an extremely dangerous crisis of the moral sense, which is becoming more and more incapable of distinguishing between good and evil. We've seen that in the last times there were false prophets and false teachers performing false signs and false wonders and preaching a false faith with false words, all under the guidance of evil spirits. And in that regard, let's touch briefly on Magigoria. On the 14th of January, 1985, we're talking almost 33 years ago, well, Vicka, one of the seers, was supposedly in ecstasy. A Frenchman poked at her in the eyes, and she jerked away. Now, in a true ecstasy, she wouldn't have moved. That's bad enough, but it gets worse. She left the room. And then she returned and explained that the reason that she moved was because Our Lady had appeared with the child Jesus, and just when the Frenchman poked at her, it looked as if the child Jesus was going to slip from Our Lady's hands. Oh, that's completely believable. 
The whole episode's filmed. It's easy to find on the internet. But just ask yourself, if you saw someone dropping a baby, any baby, would you jump backwards? Or would you jump forwards and try to catch that child before it hit the floor? Are we supposed to believe that Our Lady, the Mother of God, came down from heaven just to drop her son on the floor? Is that what we're supposed to believe? And it happens just when some guy pokes at Vicka's eyes? Can anyone believe this? Can any reasonable man believe this? The people that believe these lies believe them because they want to believe them. We need now more than ever to have the courage to look the truth in the eye and to call things by their proper name without yielding to convenient compromises to the temptation of self-deception. Many people's consciences have become progressively obscured. The acceptance of false apparitions and false visionaries with false signs and false wonders is a telling sign of an extremely dangerous crisis of the moral sense, which is becoming more and more incapable of distinguishing between good and evil. Now, before we go any further, I'd like everyone to notice something. So far in this sermon, I've criticized certain members of the hierarchy and even the current pope. I'd like everyone to notice two things. In the first place, what your interior reaction was to those critiques, whether they disturbed you or not, whether they made you uncomfortable, angry or not. And in the second place, how you react to the following critiques, whether they disturb you or not, whether they make you uncomfortable or angry or not. Another characteristic of the last times is schism. In the time of apostasy and heresy, schism can seem very attractive, very tempting to those Catholics who manage to keep the true faith because it offers an apparent solution for all the chaos. They can say to themselves, let's just get away from all this. Schism is a crystallization of orthodox dissent. Schism occurs when either a group or even an individual, while keeping the true faith, nevertheless voluntarily, knowingly, and deliberately separates himself from the unity of the Church by refusing to submit to the legitimate authority of the Pope and or to remain in communion with those who are subject to him. As the Catechism of Pope St. Pius X states, that was the official catechism promulgated during his reign, quote, Who are schismatics? Answer, schismatics are those Christians who will not explicitly denying any dogma, yet voluntarily separate themselves from the Church of Jesus Christ, that is, from their lawful pastors. Close quote. Let's not forget at Fatima, Our Lady asked for the conversion of Russia from schism to Catholicism. St. Augustine comments on schism, quote, is a manifest rule that one ought in no wise secede from the Catholic communion, that is, from the body of Christians throughout the world, by the establishment of a separate communion, even on the admission of evil and sacrilegious men, close quote. So St. Augustine makes it perfectly clear that even with, even with evil and sacrilegious men present in the church, and it seems like we have a bumper crop of them right now, we cannot 
and must not, under any circumstances, separate ourselves from the unity of the church and form a separate communion. Now notice St. Augustine is not citing canon law. And the reason for this is because schism is essentially a question of moral theology, not legal question. Schism is not something that comes into being by a legal declaration. When speaking of heresy, St. Alphonsus speaks of heretics before God. In other words, of someone who is a heretic, but has not been legally declared so by a solemn judgment of the church. The idea here is that the sin of heresy precedes the judgment of the church that the man actually is a heretic. And even if the church never got around in a particular case of judging some man, if he were to stubbornly deny any reveal of the truth of the Catholic faith, even after he'd been shown to be wrong, he would still be a heretic before God, judgment or not. Okay, so the situation with schism is analogous. We can speak of schismatics before God. In other words, a people are schismatic, but have not been legally declared so by a solemn judgment of the church. The sin of schism precedes the judgment of the church. If a group, or even an individual, while keeping the true faith, nevertheless voluntarily, knowingly, and deliberately separate himself from the unity of the church by refusing to submit to the legitimate authority of the Pope and or to remain in communion with those who are subject to him, he or they would still be schismatic, even if the church never got around to making a solemn declaration. They'd be schismatics before God. So schism is principally a question of moral theology, not canon law. One notable aspect of the particular evil spirit behind the sin of schism is that it gives the adherence of sin this impression, which is really an illusion, of purity and piety. It helps them make, makes them feel holy and good about maintaining doctrinal and moral purity, and at the same time, feel justified and separate themselves from legitimate obedience to the Pope and or communion with other Catholics as if they might somehow become tainted by these sort of associations. But even with evil and sacrilegious men present in the church, and admittedly, we seem to have a lot right now, we cannot and must not, under any circumstance, separate ourselves from the unity of the church and form a separate communion. With that in mind, let's pause for a moment and consider a historical situation. Within hours, literally hours of their consecration, one of the first bishops of the church committed suicide, the first pope denied our Lord three times, and along with nine of the remaining bishops, proceeded to abandon our Lord. In other words, roughly 92% of the first bishops of the Catholic Church, including the Pope, ran away. It's absolutely spectacular. Look at the stations of the cross. Do y'all see the Pope in there anywhere? No, you don't because he wasn't there. He wasn't there. Now think about that for a moment. Within hours of being consecrated, roughly 92% of the first bishops of the Catholic Church, including the Pope, abandoned our Lord. Only one remained faithful to the bitter end. And it's impossible to think of a more bitter end than standing there at the foot of the cross. And yet at that time, he couldn't explain what was happening. How could God die? Isn't this the Messiah hanging there? 
What's going on? But even though he couldn't answer those questions, yet he stayed close to Our Lady. And because he stayed close to Our Lady, even when the scandal and horror were too great for his fellow bishops, he remained faithful. He stayed close to Our Lady. And he remained faithful. It would be sheer blasphemy to suggest that in response to all this, St. John, the faithful apostle, the faithful bishop, should separate himself from communion with Peter and the other apostles and set up his own separate communion to keep away from all those sinners who abandoned and even denied our Lord. But that's exactly what schism is. And if St. John had no reason or any right to break the unity of the mystical body, and he had not, then how much less has anyone over these past 2,000 years had the right to break the unity of the mystical body? As we enter more deeply into the passion of the church, and as it looks ever more and more like his mystical body is dying, and so many of his hierarchy are banning our Lord, even with the evil and sacrilegious men present in the church, even if we can't explain what's happening, if we stay close to Our Lady, she'll obtain for us the grace not to break communion with Peter and the church, the grace to not refuse to submit to the legitimate authority of the Pope and order to remain in communion with those who are subject to him because we cannot and must not under any circumstance separate ourselves from the unity of the church and form a separate communion. This is a salvation issue. Okay. So far I've criticized St. Peter, all the apostles, and St. John, John the Beloved, certain members of the hierarchy and even the current Pope. That's a pretty formidable list. Now remember that I asked everybody to note two things. In the first place, what your interior reaction was to the critique so far, whether they disturbed you or not, whether they made you uncomfortable or angry or not. In the second place, how you react to the following critiques, whether they disturb you or not, whether they make you uncomfortable or angry or not. Because now I'm about to break some unwritten rules. I have a letter in my possession written by a very likable and zealous young SSPX priest in which he actually praises me and the parish in which I was working at the time. And yet, in that very same letter, insists that in spite of these good things, the laity should avoid that parish precisely because, quote, as the FSSP has the element of compromise, by this he means we're in union with the conciliar church, as the FSSP has element of compromise and is consequently evil, it must therefore be avoided, close quote. Now that's not a unique opinion. In fact, since the early 70s, this at least has been at the heart, of the very heart of SSPX approach to the crisis in the church. I'll just cite a few quotes from Archbishop Lefebvre to make the point. 1976, quote, This conciliar church is therefore not Catholic. To whatever extent pope, bishops, priests, or faithful adhere to this new church, they separate themselves from the Catholic church. Close quote, Archbishop Lefebvre. 1987, quote, Rome has lost the faith, my dear friends. Rome is in apostasy. These are not words in the air, it is the truth. Rome is in apostasy. They have left the church. This is sure, sure, sure. Close quote, Archbishop Lefebvre. 1987, quote, The see of Peter and the post of authority in Rome being occupied by antichrists, the destruction of the kingdom of our Lord is being rapidly carried out, even within his mystical body here below. This is what brought, has brought down upon our heads persecution by the Rome of the Antichrists. Close quote, Archbishop Lefebvre. 
The Archbishop and the priest who wrote of me were certainly not the only ones holding such views. Here are a few excerpts from an open letter to Cardinal Ganton, signed by 24 SSPX superiors in July 1988. Quote, as for us, we're in full communion with all the popes and bishops before the Second Vatican Council. We have never wished to belong to this system which calls itself the conciliar church. We ask for nothing better than to be declared outside of this impious communion of the ungodly. To be publicly associated with this excommunication of the bishops would be for us a mark of honor and a sign of orthodoxy before the faithful. The priests who serve them are not in communion with the counterfeit church. Close quote. <clears throat> As Pope Benedict XVI stated to the SSPX bishops and priests, even after lifting the excommunication, quote, they do not legitimately exercise any ministry in the church. Close quote, Pope Benedict XVI. They're suspended ad divinis. What this means in their case, that unless they're actually dying, there's other things, but this is important. Unless they're actually dying, they have to have that suspension lifted before they can be validly, validly absolved from their sins. Now think about that for a second. There's a barrier between the suspended priest and the confessor. So until, unless they have this suspension lifted by Rome, they cannot make a good confession because they can't be validly absolved, unless, of course, they're dying. Think about that. That means something. I think this is one of the principal reasons why over the course of the years they've lost about 50% of the priests. As far as I know, it's the highest percentage of anything in the world. These men really need our prayers. We really need to pray for them. And for all those many years, until Pope Francis apparently extended him this faculty, they could not lift the excommunication that's attached to abortion since they did not have those faculties, except in the case of someone actually dying. But they didn't tell anybody that. They didn't tell anybody that. When you go in a diocese, that's one of the first things you find out your faculty. Can I lift that excommunication? Because I've worked in one where you couldn't. How many poor people have been left in their sins as a result of this? How many? Think about that. That means something. This SPX bishops reordained priests. And as you know, from your catechism, holy orders leaves an indelible mark. So it's a sacrament which cannot and must not be repeated without the pain of sacrilege. Yet they reordained priests. In at least one case, an SXPX bishop reordained a priest that had been ordained by the Pope. An SXPX bishop reordained a priest who had been ordained by the Pope. Think about that. That means something. They reconfirm Catholics, as you know from your catechism. Confirmation is another sacrament that leaves an indelible mark. So does a sacrament which cannot, must not be repeated under the pain of sacrilege. Yet they customarily reconfirm Catholics. Think about that. That means something. And in an absolutely unheard of novelty, and as if the Council of Trent never even happened, they judged marriage cases and even dared grant annulments, in spite of the explicit anathema 
of the Council of Trent, and I quote, Canon 12, if anyone saith that matrimonial cases do not belong to the ecclesiastical judges, let him be anathema. Close quote, the Council of Trent. Think about that. That means something. We spoke earlier about the application of the Morse Letizia, by which many prelates are now claiming that somehow consistent with the Catholic faith should pretend that people are living in sin or actually married, and then compound that sacrilegious recognition by extending to those poor sinners an official invitation to make sacrilegious communions. And we pointed out that situation prevails in Rome. But it's only fair to point out that these horrors were first promoted on a grand scale in the Catholic circles, not by liberals, but by the traditionalists by groups such as the Society of St. Pius X, who for decades, in a direct repudiation of the teaching of the Council of Trent, encouraged countless couples to invalidly attempt to contract the sacrament of marriage in their chapels, and thus to live together without the benefit of actual sacramental marriage, and yet at the same time, continue to receive communion. And although the Tratty Press has been on fire with condemnations of the antics around Morris Letizia, and rightly so, still there's not a peep from that same Tratty Press about the fact that this very thing has been going on for decades in traditional chapels. Not a peep. In fact, the Tratty Press doesn't address any of the issues that we've talked about. And you should also think about that. That means something. To top all this off, we have the spectacle in September of 2015 of Bishop Fillet writing a letter on the proper understanding of marriage to the Pope. Now, content-wise, it's actually a good letter, that's true. But given that he's been the superior of the SSPX since 1994, and given that for decades the SSPX has ensured, as a matter of principle, that virtually all the marriages contracted in their chapels are invalid, this is really a little hard to take seriously. In 1991, three of the SSPX bishops consecrated another bishop without a papal mandate. So not only were they consecrated bishops against the will of the Pope, they have also consecrated a bishop against the will of the Pope. But if the Pope commands a bishop to not consecrate, then he cannot claim a papal mandate to consecrate. For then he would be claiming that the church's head on earth is not the Pope. Think about that. That means something. Although the SSPX seems to be very concerned with Vatican II, as we've seen, they haven't hesitated to trample on the clear teachings of the Council of Trent. In their sacramental practices alone, they've made compromise after compromise after compromise, and in the process, establishing a whole regime of unheard of novelties. And yet they dare to claim they're preserving tradition. That brings us back to a request I made several minutes ago. I asked everyone to note what his interior reaction was to critiques I made of St. Peter, of all the apostles except St. John the Beloved, of certain members of the hierarchy and even the current Pope, then I mentioned I was going to break several unwritten rules and I asked everyone to note whether the critiques I was about to make disturbed him or made him uncomfortable and angry. I did that for a good reason. 
I've noticed something very interesting over the years. I have never had anyone get angry and complain over my critiques of St. Peter, the Apostles, or in fact, any of the saints. I have served under three popes, and although I have never had anyone get angry, I have had a few, a very few people complain over my critiques of those popes. That being said, without exception, virtually every time I have made even the mildest critique of the SSPX, I have had a significant number of people get angry and complain, and to make even the slightest correction for critique of the Archbishop is just absolutely unacceptable. And so at this point, I would like to invite all those who are spun up right now to enter themselves and consider this question. Why is it acceptable, on the one hand, to offer a faithful critique of the saints, the popes, the hierarchy, what have you? But on the other hand, why is it unacceptable to do exactly the same thing in regards to the SSPX and Archbishop Lefebvre? Think about that. That means something. As we've seen, the cynicism precedes the judgment of the church. If a group or even an individual will keep in the true faith, nevertheless voluntarily, knowingly, and deliberately separate himself from the unity of the church by refusing to submit to the legitimate authority of the Pope in order to remain in communion with those who are subject to him, he or they would still be schismatic, even if the church never got around to making a solemn declaration. But there has been a solemn declaration of schism by a judge whose judgments cannot be appealed. St. John Paul II, quote, in itself, this act was one of disobedience to the Roman pontiff in a very grave matter and of supreme importance for the unity of the church, such as the ordination of bishops whereby the apostolic succession is sacramentally perpetuated. Hence, such disobedience, which implies in practice the rejection of the Roman primacy, constitutes a schismatic act. I wish especially to make an appeal both solemn and heartfelt, paternal and fraternal to all those who until now have been linked in various ways with the movement of Archbishop Lefebvre. They may fulfill the grave duty of remaining united to the Vicar of Christ and the unity of the Catholic Church, and of ceasing their support in any way for that movement. Everyone should be aware that formal adhe adherence to the schism is a grave offense against God." Close quote. Pope St. John Paul II, July 2nd, 1988. Everyone should be aware that formal adherence to the schism is a grave offense against God. Think about that. That means something. One of the best canon lawyers in the world, a man who I also consider to be a very obviously holy, recently addressed this very question, and I'm speaking about Cardinal Burke. I quote, despite the various arguments surrounding the question, the fact of the matter is that the priestly society of St. Pius X is in schism, since the late Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre ordained four bishops without the mandate of the Roman pontiff. And so it is not legitimate to attend Mass to receive the sacraments in a church that's under the direction of the Priestess Society of St. Pius X. Well, Benedict XVI lifted the excommunication of the four bishops who were ordained without the papal mandate. 
But the requirement for having excommunication lifted is that a person has withdrawn from his condomacy, now desires to be fully reconciled with the church. But in fact, that hasn't happened. And so they're no longer excommunicated, but they're also not in regular communion with the Catholic Church. Close quote, Cardinal Burke. The fact of the matter is the priestly society of St. Pius X is in schism. Doesn't anyone care about their souls? How we need to pray, really pray, for the speedy return of all those faithful priests and bishops who have cut themselves off from the vine. We need to pray. We need now more than ever to have the courage to look the truth in the eye, call things by the proper name, without yielding to convenient compromise or the temptation of self-deception. Many people's consciences have become progressively obscured. The acceptance of schism in the popular mind and behavior is a telling sign of an extremely dangerous crisis of the moral sense, which is becoming more and more incapable of distinguishing between good and evil. Let's close. In the last times, there'll be an absolutely terrible, unprecedented outbreak of evil, during which time society will be torn apart by apostasy, heresy, schism, sedition, revolution, and war. We live in dark, dark times. Our society is being torn apart by apostasy, heresy, schism, and sedition. We're fighting wars and fomenting revolutions all over the globe. We find ourselves immersed in a society of men who, for the most part, still profess to be Christians, but are wicked in their works, perverse in their ideas, and who clearly love pleasure more than God. Men, for the most part, who don't want to hear the truth because it hurts, because it will hurt them and cause them to have to change their sinful, disordered ways of life, ways of thinking. Men who would rather have teachers affirm them in their sins and lie to them than to correct their false beliefs and vices and hurt their feelings. The church is in shambles. The Pope says so many bizarre things, it's impossible to keep track of them all. We need to pray for fidelity to the truth. We need to pray for the humility to embrace the truth, no matter how painful, no matter how much it costs. We need to pray for the humility to take responsibility for our own actions, for the humility to admit it when we're acting wrongly or thinking wrongly. As we enter ever more deeply into the passion of the church in these dark, dark days, as it looks ever more like his mystical body is dying, covered with wounds, smitten by sin, abandoned by so many priests and members of hierarchy, even though we can't fully explain what's happening, we stay close to Our Lady. If we stay close to Our Lady, She'll obtain for us the grace to remain faithful to the end, to remain faithful to the truth, to truth incarnate, until the end, till the very end.